0: Well, if you have your Bibles turn, Well, I guess, did we dismiss the children? Okay, we did. Okay, they're already gone. They're already trained. So, um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be continuing our, our study in, in 1 Peter. And as you turn there, I just want to encourage you and, and thank you for being a praying church. Um, as you know, uh, with the various prayer requests that came out this week, uh, some of our folks have experienced loss and uh, just uh, I know uh, they're grateful for your your prayers and faithfulness in praying for them uh, during this time. Um, so there was a pastor who was building a wooden trellis in his backyard and he was out there with all of the tolls and things that you need to build such a thing. And there was a neighbor boy that came by and he was just kind of standing off to the side, kind of watching what was going on. He didn't say anything to the pastor as he was working. Um, and, and the pastor didn't know why he was there he was he was uninvited but he figured you know maybe as i work he'll pick up some skills and as he's watching me and uh, maybe eventually he'll go away but he didn't the more he kept working the more the boy kept staring and wouldn't go away finally the preacher put down his hammer and he said so are you trying to get some tips on gardening or woodworking or any kind of skills that you see me doing? And the little boy said, nope, I'm just waiting to hear what a preacher says when he hits his nail with a hammer. <laughs> That's a good question, right? Some of you are wondering, wondering that about me. Um, we're in church, so no. Um, I, I wouldn't. I don't think I would. Um, I might cry a little bit and yell and all those things, but um, but it does bring up a good point, right? And that is that the world is always watching us. It's not just a pastor thing. It's if you belong to Jesus, the world is watching. The camera is always rolling. When you let people know that you love and follow Jesus, there's a certain scrutiny that comes from an unbelieving world because they're watching you thinking, okay, so what are you going to do? Not just when you hit your thumb with a hammer, but when you are going through a difficult time or when there's a challenging, challenging situation that you're facing or when you get bad news or when you are hearing that a situation isn't working out for good, how will you respond to that? People really are trying to figure out what we are really all about. This isn't a new thought in First Peter, what we're going to talk about this morning. We've been looking at examples, especially in chapter 2, of how a world that does not follow Jesus will often see how we respond to them, especially in the midst of difficulty. And that began with that topic of submission and, and how we can find ourselves in situations where there are people over us that don't believe like we believe. In fact, they don't believe at all. And often their leadership over us can be a trouble And so, what was Peter's message? To submit. But not just submission for the sake of submission. His bigger challenge was to put on the heart of Christ and pursue that which builds up and doesn't tear down. Be like Jesus. And not fight and argue. And not feel like you have to defend For the sake of your comfort and safety. See even in a fallen world. For the most part. One of the things that we see. Is that. For the most part. The world does respond to kindness. When we put on the heart of Christ. Which we know. That kindness is is one of the fruits of the spirit. The world will respond well to that. I see it often in the world that I live in, just observing, but I see it every time I get my license renewed when I go to the DMV, how many of you, anyone work in the DMV before I go too far in this illustration, Uh, I might get flagged on YouTube or something. We laugh because it's that, um, it's that situation that often drives people the most bonkers for some reason. I mean, you're sitting there, you get your number, and you, you just kind of like are waiting for whatever you need, getting your license picture retaken or whatever. And, 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 and I just observe people come in and out, and just the, the frustration on the faces of the workers and the people there, And you kind of hear the conversations because it's all one big kind of common area where people will come in to do something. And they'll say, and the worker will say, well, you didn't bring the right documents. And then there's this back and forth. And sometimes it's not very kind in what is said and done. And it often seems like, right, the DMV workers are often short with people. Like they have no tolerance or patience for anyone. Now, if I was in that situation, I would probably struggle with that for the amount of hassle that they have to go through. But I see every once in a while someone who is in a troubling situation and you can already sense the worker like getting ready to dig in with their their answer of frustration. And that person will treat them with kindness and it kind of flips the script. And, and while they can't get what they want out of their visit that day, they're not stomping out of there ready to just burn the place down because they couldn't get what they wanted. See, we, we live in a world where if you show a little kindness, it goes a long way. We talked about this last week, right? It's better to ch- attract flies with what? Honey than vinegar. Vinegar. And that's kind of what Peter has been drawing our attention to in this passage. And we've been hitting this often in this book. Like you're probably sitting here saying, we get it. Be good, do nice things, put on the heart of Christ. We get it. How many times do we have to hear this? Could you imagine receiving this letter, though? And it was verse after verse, example after example of do good, put the heart of Christ on, be compassionate, do not repay evil for evil. Now, why would Peter need to remind those people of that? Because they're strangers and aliens that are being persecuted for their faith. And they have been going through a season of time where it seems like they are constantly bombarded on every side with all of this pressure to abandon their faith. Because of their faith, people are saying, you're believing a lie, and what you believe we don't agree with. And they're feeling this personal tension inside of what it means, what the cost is to follow Christ. And Peter says, hang in there. Understand the greater picture. Understand the bigger moment of what God is doing. As he uses you as his example of sacrificial love and faithfulness. If you're able to show a tender-hearted, loving, non-retaliatory response, it can go a long way in the interactions that you have in a fallen world. Peter even goes so far to say, even if it is their fault, put the heart of Christ on. And isn't that where it's most difficult? Like, I can understand if I mess up. And then, you know, through the process of conviction and confession and and realizing, okay, I need to own up to what I need to own up to. But then there are those moments where you seem to be doing the right thing in God's eyes. And it's met with slander and harassment and persecution and trouble. And you think, what is this about? Peter says, put on the heart of Christ, even in those moments where it doesn't seem fair. So what happens when we put on the heart of Christ and it's met with hostility? What happens when you are seeking to be kind and it is met with rudeness or slander? You know, we we've often used the phrase kill them with kindness, thinking by our behavior, by our actions, will show people the love of Christ. And we sang in our last song, make me a blessing, right? The second verse of that song says, as we go out trying to be a blessing, that we go with the gospel. But what happens when we are being kind to people, being loving to people, trying to engage people and show them a right example of following Jesus? And they look at us and say, you're a fool. So Peter answers... That question in the text this morning. How many of you remember the story of Graham Staines? you remember who that guy is? Graham Staines um, was a missionary in India. He primarily worked with lepers. uh, Him and his wife and their family. And in 1999, he and his two sons were killed... By militant Hindus. Graham and his sons were burned to death. They were ministering in a camp in the jungles of India. And in the middle of the night, these militant Hindus came to the camp where they were ministering. And sought to disrupt the work that was going on at the camp. Work that was being done for the sake of the gospel. The radical men set fire to the jeep that Graham and his children were sleeping in that evening because there was nowhere for them to sleep. And the three of them were burned alive. After the fire had cold, they discovered Graham's arms surrounding his boys to kind of shelter them. The simple reason they died is because they were Christians. That's it. They were there doing good for the sake of the Gospel, pouring their lives into the people of India and met the ultimate act of suffering for the sake of Christ. So what happens when you're doing good and it's met with hostility? Now, you know, what's hard for us is that the overwhelming majority of the population of Christians around us and us and the people that we know that love Jesus will never be in a situation even close to what Graham Staines went through. The kind of persecution that certain Christians are facing today for loving and following Jesus, the kind where literally their lives are on the line, we're likely to never even get close to that kind of persecution. And it can be hard for us to read passages like this because these believers were living in a situation where, in a way, their lives were on the line. They were living in a Roman world where their Lord wasn't Caesar, it was Jesus, and they were being persecuted for their faith. Their lives were on the line. For us, Persecution looks a lot different. Suffering for Jesus looks a lot different today than it does for some people. You know, we—I I think one of the biggest forms of persecution that we can face today in our culture that begins to take on a form of the kind of persecution that they're facing is—you know—we're we're living in a cancel culture. You know, if you, if you stand up for what is right for Jesus Christ, if you believe what the Bible says is true, right? if you actually take these words for what they are, as the living Word of God, there is more and more pressure put on by the outside world that if you don't fall into line into their mold, then you're going to get canceled and just removed from culture and it's it's happening all around us in different ways so what happens when we are facing suffering for the sake of jesus so let's read the text together i want to read to you uh, verses 13 through 17 this is what peter says and more importantly this is the word of god so god is speaking We read who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So notice what Peter says in verse 13 first. He says, for the most part, that doing the right thing does not bring trouble. He says... Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? He asks a rhetorical question that really doesn't need an answer because we know what it's like to live in a world where even amongst fallen people, if you do something good, it's usually not met with trouble. Being kind goes a long way. It really does. Remember how verse 12 ended. Verse 12 was... Um, a quote from the Old Testament. And it ends for the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, what what Peter is doing and building upon these things is he's inviting us to see that. Remember, God is the ultimate judge. He is the one that ultimately uh, punishes those who do evil. It's not our job to be God's gavel. Right? It's not our job to be the instrument of God's judgment and justice. Let God do that. So, what does Peter invite us to consider? Rather than being a people that are walking around ready to enact God's judgment on a fallen world, be a people that are ready to do good. And not just be ready to do good, but Peter says be zealous for what is good. Be zealous. Now, the word zealous means you're fanatical. It really does. There were zealots that lived in the first century world. We, we know there was Simon the Zealot, right, in the, in the Gospels that we read. There were people that were marked off as zealous for something. And these people, uh, zealot, would be looked at as strange, like, why are you so consumed with that by an observing world? Peter says that we are to be zealous today as people that are sold out for the cause of Christ by doing good. We should be passionate about the things that God defines as good. And if we are things like justice and peace, forgiveness and sacrificial love, things that build people up rather than tear them down. Like if we're zealous for those kinds of things, if we're passionate about those kinds of things, for the most part, Peter invites us to consider that very likely you're not going to receive any kind of harm or pushback for that. You see that in the world that you live in, and I do too. When churches reach out to their communities that are devastated by a natural disaster. And and they're, you know, on the front lines of of feeding people and and, and clothing people and providing shelter for people and all those good works. They're zealous for good works. There aren't people in the community saying, no, you shouldn't be doing that. that. That's a terrible thing. How dare you? Be compassionate and show empathy. And for the most part, people aren't doing that. I mean, for the past 2000 years, the church has been a forerunner of good in the world. Rescuing people from hunger and homelessness. Addictions and slavery. Like a lot of the... the, um, Agencies that are out there today, like the Red Cross and AA and all of those kinds of things that are available for people that are in need. They were started by the church. They were Christian run organizations that sought to minister to people that were in great need. The church has always been on the forefront of being a uh, rescuing influence in a hurting world. Normally, goodness is profitable. Do good. Be zealous for good works. But then Peter says, but even if... Those three words can often be the bitter pill to swallow, right? But even if... Like we want to hold on to the truth of verse 13 and and lean into that and say, OK, we got it. We can be zealous for good works. We're not going to be met with harm. Let's go forward. And then what happens is as we do those good works, even if and then we think, oh, no, what are we going to do? You know, we met persecution or trials or suffering. And sometimes people shrink away from that or they hear the stories of it and say, oh, I know someone that was trying to do good in a situation like this and they were met with harm. And so we think, well, I don't want to be met with harm. So we stop. But, but Peter says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And Peter invites us to consider the grace of God in the midst of our suffering for the sake of righteousness. And that's a very important indication why we're suffering. If you're suffering for being a fool, there isn't grace in that. But if you're suffering for the sake of righteousness, and what is righteousness? That which is right in God's eyes. If you suffer for doing good, if you suffer for the name of Christ, if your desire is to make Christ known among the nations... And you're suffering for him. But even if. Even if there are people going out of their way to bring suffering in the midst of those who are trying to do good. Peter says, consider what God is providing. So what Peter does is he first he says, you're blessed, which doesn't seem to make sense. Doesn't seem like a blessing when we're suffering, right? How many of you are excited in the midst of suffering and say, Thank you, God, for this pain that I'm going through? That's not the natural response, but it is the supernatural response. It is the Holy Spirit in you response to understand that God is working a plan that is far greater than what we can see with our eyes or plan with our minds. So sometimes people are going to go out of their way to bring harm to us. And so what Peter does is he invites us to consider one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And in verse 14, we, we have a quote here from Isaiah chapter 8. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. You know, Peter just kind of tucks that in as a supporting argument for what he says about when you're suffering for what is good. You're going to be blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He invites us to consider the example of Isaiah, the prophet. See, in Isaiah chapter eight, we, we see this prophet who's being called by God to bring a stern warning to the nation of Israel that God's own people. He was called by God to warn them of impending trouble and doom if they continued to follow their own way. And see what was happening in Isaiah eight is that Isaiah's prophetic ministry wasn't met with trumpets and declarations of thank you, Isaiah, for calling us out of the darkness. We are so grateful that you are here calling us back. No, the people of Israel were hearing Isaiah's message and they were like, you're a fool. We are not listening to you. And Isaiah was going through a season in his prophetic ministry where he was struggling to understand and and, and remember, like, God, am I doing the right thing? He was beginning to doubt his own call in ministry. He was meeting persecution and suffering and he was wondering, should I keep doing this? And so God is speaking here in Isaiah 8. And he reminds Isaiah to press in and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled by what you are facing. God promised to take care of Isaiah and God did. And as we read the rest of the book of Isaiah, we know that that Isaiah was faithful to God and what he continued to do for the sake of the Lord. Isaiah was preserved in his calling by God. And when it was time, and this is what we also need to remember, Isaiah died a martyr's death. He eventually did die for being a mouthpiece for God. He's included in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith as people that trusted God and served him. And we read at the end of Hebrews chapter uh, 11 that there were people... That suffered at the hands of wicked men for the sake of their faithfulness in believing God. And uh, Jewish history indicates that Isaiah was cut in half by King Manasseh with a saw. And so Isaiah was faithful to be God's voice to an unbelieving generation. And his life met the ultimate act of suffering... And yet he remained faithful even to the end. Eventually, persecution is inevitable. Paul told Timothy, and we looked at this verse a few weeks ago, that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, not you might, but if you live for Jesus, you will be persecuted. Why will you persecuted because the world may tolerate goodness to a point but when they start to understand where your goodness comes from because they hate jesus they're going to hate you so peter says there is there is a blessing that occurs when this happens And as I said, it doesn't seem normal. It doesn't seem like the normal pattern of things. But the blessing includes the favor of God in general, that we live in the shelter of God's protection and goodness because we are doing what God desires. So there's a blessing when we know that we are living out the will of God in our lives. That even though there's trouble and trials and persecution, when you believe and trust God and live in the shelter of his righteousness... That's good for you because really there's only one. um, I don't even want to say opinion. There's only one thoughts that matter for your life, and it's the thoughts of God. It doesn't matter what people say about you. If God approves of you, he is honored and you are blessed. We read in chapter 2, verse 20, that there's no merit in suffering for doing the wrong thing. And this reoccurring theme of suffering and God's promises in the midst of that suffering is something that he wants us to take notice of. And Peter knows that the heart is weakened through persecution. Peter knows that when we're suffering for the sake of what is right, and I've seen this even uh, in, in, in ways where, you know, young people will take a stand for what is right and good in a fallen world. And, and they go to school and they take a stand for what is right and good in a fallen world. And, and they seem to be the minor voice in, in a crowd of voices that say, that's foolishness, that's silly, that's stupid, whatever you want to fill in the blank about that. And over time, it kind of erodes at them. Right, that constant dripping of you're a fool, that is wrong, no one else believes that, all those things. And what can happen over time is that people that make a a commitment to something where there isn't a lot of support in that commitment, uh, their, their faithfulness can be eroded because through the persecution, their heart is weakened. And what Peter is saying to people like that and the people that he's writing to is hold on to God, trust Him, and understand that He will always bless you even in the face of persecution. So even if you suffer, you are blessed. And then verse 15, and that's really the key To this passage, that's the main point that Peter wants to make known. He writes, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter says, don't fear, don't be afraid in times of persecution. But he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, to sanctify means to set apart. When Jesus is Lord of our life, the expectation is that we would treat him as so. Do you see that? Okay, so when if Jesus is Lord and Savior, if he's the one that we've gone to as the king who rescues the sinner, If we believe that Christ is the king of everything, he is the sovereign Lord. What Peter is saying is if we believe that and confess that, then we should live it out. We should sanctify Christ. We should be living in such a way that we actually think through the filter of who Christ is. That that thought affects how we conduct ourselves. Sanctify Christ, Lord, in your hearts. When facing persecution, we're called to make him first. The way to do so is to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, I want you to notice a few things about that phrase in verse 15. First, the logical outcome for doing good is that people will ask you why you're different. They're going to ask you. They might not ask you the first time, but if you're faithful in doing good, they're going to ask, why are you doing good? Why aren't you like everyone else giving into the noise of complaining and frustration and bitterness? Why do you keep rising up in the midst of trouble? The question is inevitable. Uh, I was reminded of that this week uh, two two different times. Um, Through you, through the testimony of those in our church that were walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That in the midst of great sorrow and suffering, you provided great hope to those around you because you knew that God was doing a better thing. And you were able to trust in His goodness. And what I watched is that people are tuned into that. And they want to know why you have such hope in the midst of such despair. Do you see when you're ready to make a defense in the midst of trials and suffering? How that can be an invitation to a greater conversation. And so Peter says, make a defense. Now, this word defense comes from a Greek word, apologia. It's where we get the English word apology. But a defense isn't apologizing for why we believe. And I think, you know, there's a whole study in uh, theology called apologetics. And, And sometimes we think of this word apology and say, oh, you know, all we're doing is saying we're sorry for believing. No, that's not what... Peter is saying here, that's not what the word means. This word apologia was used in the first century world for those who stood in a courtroom and were called to make a compelling argument on behalf of someone. I mean, that makes sense, right? When you think about it, we are always in the courtroom of life. Christ is always under attack. People want to know who Jesus is. And when you are able to rise up and bless, even when you're persecuted, people are going to ask questions. And we should always be ready to give a a defense. People want to know why you're different. So Peter says, be ready. Always. Be ready. Always. Not only is the question inevitable, but... We give an account for our hope. Not our ability to endure. We're not giving an account of how good and strong we are to dig in in the midst of persecution. It's not about us. Peter says that as we get ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us. We point people to the true hope. Not in our ability. And who is our hope? the King of kings and Lord of lords, who conquered death and the grave, who is victorious over a fallen world, who holds all things together in His hands and is working His purposes out for His glory. There is an expectation that we understand that Christ is the reason we are able to stand. Brothers and sisters, we have hope, and we should always be ready to give a defense of that hope. We have a living hope. He's not a dead hope, He's not in a grave somewhere. He's alive, He is on the throne at the right hand of the Father. He is coming again with victory and power to make all things right in this world. Brothers and sisters, you have a living hope. When you are living in a world that is crashing down around you and people are looking at you like you are insane for believing in a resurrected man, you have hope. Give an account for that hope. Give a defense for who Jesus is. Help people to know why you are able to hold yourself together when everything else is falling apart. You have hope. But Peter adds two conditions to that hope. Two attitudes, really. Do so with gentleness and reverence. So so let me just start with reverence. I know it's the second one, but just so you understand. Reverence means our attitude towards God. That our answer would rightly understand who He is as the Lord of the universe. When we give an answer for the hope that is in us with reverence, that means we're actually taking very seriously the call to speak on behalf of God for the hope that we have. That we're not just kind of like blindly going through and say, you know, I I think Jesus loves me and I, I guess he loves you too. Like it's not just these kind of like vague, casual answers. Because we revere God and we know that His truth sets the heart free, we should know God's truth well enough to be able to give an accurate defense for the hope that we have. That means we should be a student of Scripture and know theology. And you might say, I thought that's your job, Pastor. You teach us theology. Okay, I can teach you, but you are to put it in your hearts. Because good theology leads to good living. And as we live well in a fallen world, we should understand why we're living well in a fallen world. And it's found in the word of God. And so we should be able to defend accurately out of our reverence for God the hope that we have. But Peter also says, do it with gentleness. Do it with gentleness. Gentleness is our attitude towards those that are asking about the hope. Listen, I've heard people make a defense before, um, before someone, a defense for Jesus, and they come across as delicate as a grenade being thrown. in gentleness. Gentleness means being meek, but meekness is not being a doormat. It means that you seek the best for the person that is asking the questions. You're not just trying to prove them wrong. And you're not trying to blast them away in judgment. You're seeking with God's truth to invite them into the grace of God and the gospel. So that their hearts could be turned over for the sake of Christ and his grace. Do it with reverence and gentleness. Verse 16 says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So they're going to ask. But remember, in the midst of suffering to keep a good conscience in which you the things you were slandered, a good conscience is possible when we know that our suffering is a result of good behavior, doing the things that are right, the things that honor God. The word slander is the verbal form of abuse that often accommodates persecution. It's gossips and insults and angry vitriol that spews out of people towards you because you love Jesus. When unbelievers who are seeking to harm those who love Jesus attack you, have a good conscience. And can I just add to that? Don't take the bait when people are acting angrily towards you for the hope that you have, when they are seeking to demean and defame the name of Christ and cast insults at you, don't take the bait. Don't feel like, oh, well, this is now my turn to bring God's judgment upon them. Get out of the way of yourself, shine the light on Christ, and do not revile when being reviled and follow his heart. Your ability to sanctify Christ in your heart to make him first will keep you from heaping insult for insult and abuse for abuse. Notice what happens when the believer does not engage in the chaos. Peter says in verse 16, those who revile you will be put to shame. They're going to be put to shame. How? Remember, God's the righteous judge. He silences the sinful critic through your righteous response. Verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that... You suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It is better. It's better. Why? Why is it better to suffer for doing right than wrong? It is because such wrongful suffering patiently endured is so remarkable that it becomes a powerful witness. When you suffer for what is right in the midst of wrong, it's a powerful witness for the sake of Christ. In this way, we follow the example of Christ who endured unjust sufferings for our salvation. The blessing that comes from God is the possible salvation of others when we endure that suffering. Remember, the world's watching. Now, I want you to notice something else in verse 17. I didn't read it um, just a second ago, but in verse 17, we read, for it is better if God should will it. That, that phrase, if God should will it. This reminds me that my pain is not an accident. My suffering for him is not an accident. That God is working his purposes out in the midst of persecution and suffering for his good. See, there is a sovereign God that is over his children. And we need to understand and rest in that. That Peter says, for it is better if God should will it, that you're suffering for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. What is what he is willing are suffering. And you might say, but shouldn't God just make everything great for us and easy and good and fine? No, we're not home yet. We're still living in the mess. He just promises to use the suffering that's in the midst of the mess for our good. God doesn't waste any moment of your suffering for His glory. He doesn't. He will not. So remember the story about Graham Staines, the missionary in India? Burned alive with his two children in their car? Let me conclude with his story. Graham was married to his wife Gladys. They had a daughter named Esther. Gladys and Esther survived. This family had moved from Australia to India to be missionaries. This wife and and daughter lost father and husband and brother. In the fallout of their being killed, Graham Staines' wife, Gladys, wrote a letter that was published in every newspaper in India. I don't know if you know it much about India, it's the highest population, like it reached a billion people. This letter. This is what the letter said. I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter, neither am I angry. But I have a great desire that every citizen of this country establish their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who gave his life for their sin. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. And then she said, I'm not leaving this country and going back home. I'm staying here. God called me here. I'm going to raise my daughter in your country. Talk about a response, right? what it means to respond well in a bad situation, terrible situation. It's not just a pastor hitting his thumb with a hammer. Can you respond with love, forgiveness, and grace? What a powerful testimony. Church, I pray that your hearts would remain steadfast to the hope that you have. The hope that you have is the hope that you need and it's all you ever need. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Witness for Him in the world and don't back down. Don't shrink away. Embrace it as an opportunity to be blessed by God and to make much of Him and trust Him for what He will do through your life. Let's pray.